morning, y'all. Uh, I'm happy to be here uh, sharing with y'all again. I feel like it's been a while. I can't remember the last time I did it. Maybe it hasn't been that long. I can't remember. Um, But yeah, I wanted to give you just before we jumped in, just a quick update on RUF and how things are going. Uh, You know, this is our uh, sixth year on campus. And in some ways, it feels like our first... uh, semester or our first year of normal ministry uh we had a tornado hit our second semester and then we're rebuilding from that in the second year and then the third and fourth and fifth years we were dealing with covid and stuff and so this feels like the first full year where we started the semester the the fall semester normal where we had uh, a consistent meeting place where we've had uh students who are coming back and who were kind of energized about school that they didn't end up with uh, weird senior years that were messed up by COVID and um, so it's it's been really exciting to see. Um, One of the things that I've noticed about about our particular group is that we have a lot of um, uh, non-believers or very uh, new to the faith uh, people, we do have we do have some who are more mature, um, and I'm I'm really thankful for the number of students that we have leading different small groups on campus and stuff like that. But we also have a lot of people who are very new to Christianity. So last semester we went through the Apostles' Creed, just the basics of the faith. And then as I had conversations with students, um, they were really thankful for the Apostles' Creed. I was thinking about what I was going to do in the spring. And uh, based on those conversations, we're basically continuing the Apostles' Creed Part 2. We're doing something uh, called Foundations. The foundations of our faith uh, that are uh, things that are not addressed in the Apostles' Creed, but very basic elements of of Christianity. Christianity that they uh, they need to hear and know and things that we just throw around in the church uh, talking about our relationship with scripture and things like that things that are very foundational important um, but that we don't necessarily explicitly explain why do we care about the Bible so much and and what is grace and what does justification mean so there's a lot of the Christianity 101 that we do over and over and over again in RUF and I'm actually really excited about it um, one of my favorite nights of the week is uh, Wednesday night because that's when I go to the Kappa Sig fraternity house to do a Bible study. Uh, the president of Kappa Sig has been, we've been connected for a while and he is the one who is gung-ho and trying to bring guys and it's so exciting to to hear those guys and to hear their wrong answers about what does the Bible mean, um, to hear their, their passion about stuff, to hear the crazy things that are happening on Thursday nights uh, when, they're, when they're partying and everything and but also to know that the guy in the midst of that. So there's a lot of exciting things happening. Uh, we've got Winter Conference coming up next weekend. Uh, so 
our RUF, as well as a couple dozen other RUFs, will go to Northwest Georgia. We'll get together, bring in a speaker, have seminars, you know, do the whole thing, uh, soak for a weekend in the gospel. There will be hundreds of students there, so y'all can, y'all can be praying for that. Uh, we have some, some students that I'm really excited are going, and even some new students that I'm hoping will be, uh, will be connected, um, will get connected to our group afterwards. We have an intern who's coming in the fall, and we will actually get to meet her at, um, at Winter Conference. And so I'm hoping that after our Winter Conference weekend, we can kind of introduce her. She's beginning the process of raising money, and I think she's going to be so perfect, such a perfect fit for us here at JSU, and I'm, I'm looking forward to, the, to how God's going to use her. So um, that was just a quick update on the things going on ministry-wise. Family-wise, you get to see us all the time now, and so you can see how our family's doing. We're doing all right, you know. Um, but uh, today we're going to be looking at Philippians two seventeen through thirty. Um, as y'all either flip there in your Bibles or look there in the in the bulletin, uh, I wanted to ask: Do you have a favorite album? Do you have like if you're a music person, do you have a favorite album that you're just like, man, that is that is my my top five or something. I actually personally don't really like it when people ask that question. If I have a favorite album, because it, it changes so much, you know, it depends on my mood. Am I feeling happy? Am I feeling gloomy? You know, that, that affects. Uh, what have I been listening to most recently? Um, what, what weather is outside? I'm a very mercurial person in that, in that sense, I guess. Um, what I, the way I like to think about it is um, not what is my favorite album, but what are some perfect albums? What is a perfect album? One that you can sit down and start from start to finish, and it's just, they nailed it on every track. The perfect album feels a little bit more objective to me, you know. Even if you're not a huge fan of the music, you can maybe objectively sit back and be like, yeah, they, they, they nailed it on, on every single song. Um, and a perfect album is really rare. Even on some of your favorite, on some of the best albums, you always get to that, that one track like six, seven, eight, where it's like the, the tune is not catchy, the lyrics are weird, um, it feels kind of out of place. You just you, you skip that track and you get back into the into the good stuff, right? Um, it's almost a perfect album if you didn't have to skip that one song there in the middle. To me, Philippians is almost a perfect album. The book of Philippians is, is so great. It is so great. It's filled with all kinds of hits. I mean, just think about it. He who began a good work in me will bring it to completion, right? To live is Christ, to die is gain. Every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Our citizenship is in heaven. From it we await a Savior. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say to you, rejoice. Do not be anxious about anything. The peace of Christ, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. And of course, the one that Paul wrote for football, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There's, there's so many great hits, right? 
It's almost a perfect album. But then you come to this passage, track seven or eight, and right in the middle, right in the middle of everything, Paul writes a travel report. This is the track that you're kind of tempted to skip. Especially when it comes right on the hill, uh, on the heels of the best single, right? You know, the, the hymn of Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. You know, explaining the gospel of Jesus' humiliation and then his exaltation. You want to skip this track and get back into the good stuff. But we need to remember, I need to remember, that God always makes perfect albums. There's not a wasted word in his word that everything in his word is for our good. And in fact, I think if we slow down and we look closely enough and we analyze the music on this track that we'll actually find some really important things about this passage. Paul was so soaked in the gospel That even in his travel reports, he's explaining the gospel. That it shows us what it is like to live a justified life. To what it it is like to be a person that has been changed by Jesus in your day-to-day life. How the theology in our heads and the worship in our hearts translates into a life of love. So today, that's what we're going to do. We're going to dial in on this out-of-place travel report and see what it is that God has to teach us. So, let's read uh, Philippians 2, 17 through 30. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that I may rejoice at seeing that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Let's pray together. Father, your word is good. Your word, you teach us in your word, even your word like this that seems mundane and seems not that important. But let us know that you are at work even in the mundane, in the not important. And sometimes that's the place where you're the, at work the most. And so I pray that you would show us that. Help us to learn what it is to serve others 
um, powered, empowered by the gospel. Be with us, we pray. Help us to glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so I wanted to look at just the three people that are in this passage. Paul, then Timothy, then Epaphroditus, and the things that we learned from each of them. So just some background. Paul is in prison in Rome as he is writing this letter. And, and in Roman jails, or in any jails back in those times, it didn't receive funding like our jails now. There weren't businesses that were built on, on jails that didn't have the same kind of mentality of human rights that we did. You didn't get three hots in a cot in jails like that. You, um, you would have to depend on the generosity of your friends. And so the Philippians, hearing that Paul had been arrested for preaching the gospel, this, this church that had been founded by Paul, they so loved their former pastor, their founding pastor, that they sent him uh, money, sent him a gift through this fellow Epaphroditus that we're going to wa- talk about in just a little bit. And Paul receives this gift in prison under unimaginable circumstances. And he is sitting in prison hoping to get to testify about the gospel to Caesar, knowing that he will very likely lose his life in the process. That's where that statement, to live as Christ, to die as gain, comes from. He's saying, hey, I don't know if I'm going to make it out. I hope I am, but I have no idea. But even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, what he says in verse 17, I'm glad. I rejoice. I'm happy to give my life to further your faith. That is, that is some serious selflessness, right? Um, that as he thinks of the possibility of martyrdom, He wants to use that to encourage the despairing Philippians. He actually calls the Philippians here, I am glad and rejoice, and likewise you also should be glad. Rejoice with me. He's calling the Philippians to rejoice in a time where he should be depressed, where he should be down in the dumps. How is Paul able to have joy in the midst of this? How is he able to call them to rejoice in the midst of this. I don't know about y'all, but I do a lot of things while grumbling and complaining. I do a lot of things out of obligation. I do a lot of things with, you know, mumbling under my breath. A lot of things because I have to. Um, And they are much less severe things than facing my death at the hands of a Roman emperor, believe it or not. My life is not that intense. Um... So how, if I have all these small things that I'm doing while mumbling and grumbling and kicking stuff around and not happy, how's Paul able to rejoice in a time like this? When Courtney and I drive into the state of Georgia, uh, we always see like the lottery sign coming in. And that always begins the discussion of like, okay, if we were to, to win the lottery... Not that we ever buy lottery tickets. We did one time because it, got, it just got too big. We were like, we couldn't. Come on. Um, but we don't usually. Um, we just buy a lot of Chick-fil-A. 
Um, so we're driving into Georgia and we see the, the billboard and it's advertising how much the, the lottery winnings are up to. And we just begin to kind of daydream. It's like, well, what will we do if we won the lottery? Um, you know, paying off debt, setting aside money for savings, giving money to church, of course, you know, um, and, uh, and ministries and things. But all of those things aside, what would you do? Would we quit our jobs if we didn't have, you know, to pay bills? Like, if you didn't have to work to pay bills, you're completely free to do whatever it was that gave you joy, right? You could do anything. Um, Martin Luther wrote something. I remember, I distinctly remember reading this in seminary and, and just something clicking, and it just resonating so deeply with me. It's called the freedom of the Christian. And he says this statement at the beginning. A Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. Because of our standing in the gospel, we are sons and daughters of the king. What does a son and daughter of the king have to do? Not a thing. We don't owe anybody anything. We're completely free. We have more than won the lottery. We, can, we only have to do the things that give us joy. We don't have to do anything out of obligation. We're saved completely by grace apart from anything that we've done. We are completely free. But then he goes on to say this. First, he says, a, a Christian is perfectly free, Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. That as believers, we are nobody's servant. We are everybody's servant. We owe nobody anything, and we owe everybody everything. He says, because... We have been transformed by the gospel. We can do whatever we want. And because we've been transformed by the gospel, we want to serve others. We want to be like Jesus. Right? That's what, that's what this passage that he's just explained is talking about. Right before this is where he says, Jesus was in the form of God. He, could, he, he had no obligation toward us at all, his rebellious creation. And yet, he became the servant of all, washing our feet, laying down his life, right? That's what Paul is doing here. He's doing what he loves, and because he's been changed by the gospel, what he loves is to give himself up for the sake of others. Paul has this joy in the ways that he serves because he remembers, I'm not doing this out of obligation. I'm doing this because it is my calling, because I can point other people to Jesus, because I can see them grow and flourish and celebrate their deepening in the gospel. But that's Paul, right? I mean, of course, he's going to be on a different level than the rest of us. What, what, about, what about Timothy? Let's look at Timothy. He had a, this genuineness in his faith. As, as soon as Paul said, Paul was saying, as soon as I'm able to, you know, send Timothy to you, as soon as I see how things are going to go with me, 
He said, I hope to send Timothy to you soon so that I can hear news about you, so that you can receive uh, news from him. And why does he want to send Timothy in particular? Timothy was kind of his right-hand man. He doesn't want to lose Timothy, right? Why is he willing to send Timothy? He said, for I have no one like him. Timothy is unmatched. Why is Timothy unmatched? He, is, he will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Genuine care, true, authentic care. What does it mean to genuinely care for the welfare of others? Paul goes on to explain that a little bit, kind of indirectly. He'll be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Why? Because they all seek their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. That, that the way that so many of us serve, the way that I so often serve, is that I want to get stuff out of somebody else. Right? That I am seeking, even in serving other people, which looks good on the outside, I'm seeking my own interest. Um, not the interests of Jesus. So I'm giving... I, some of y'all are going to roll your eyes at this. But I'm getting to an age... Where I think about my body more. I'm halfway through my 30s, you know, it's starting to kind of catch up with me. When I was 20, I never thought about my body. I never gave it a single thought. It just worked. It did what it was supposed to, you know. I could eat a whole sleeve of Oreos and, you know, like run all day and I wake up like skinnier and, you know... Not sore at all, right? Uh, a lot of the students that I interact with, they don't think about their body at all. Uh, um, last winter conference, I played soccer with them, a soccer game. And they all like go trotting off and they're all happy and I'm like slowly, you know, hobbling back and I have to rest the rest of the day. Um, yesterday, I was struggling. I had this ache in my lower back. I'm trying to pop it and stretch it out. Like, what is, what is going on? Um... Tim Keller says this. This is a fantastic book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. It's a little booklet and it is so good because it distills the gospel so clearly and makes it so practical. I'd encourage you to read it if you haven't. He says this. The ego, my ego, often hurts. And that's because there is something incredibly wrong with it. Something unbelievably wrong with it. It is always drawing attention to itself. It does so every single day. It is always making us think about how we look and how we are treated. People sometimes say that their feelings are hurt. But our feelings can't be hurt. It is the ego that hurts. Myself, my sense of self, my identity. My feelings are fine. It's my ego that hurts. So much of the time, when I am serving, it is for me, to fill something up in me. Um, often this is how I serve. I serve to be recognized. I serve to be thanked. I serve to be rewarded. I serve to be regarded. I serve to be thought well of. I serve because it's expected of me. And what will they think if I don't do the thing that they think that I should do, right? Who is at the center of all of that? It's me, not Jesus Christ. That's not what's going on here with, with Timothy. He is not seeking his own interests. 
He is the, the disciple of Paul. He's not preparing to be Paul 2.0. If you think Paul's ministry is big and bad, just wait until Timothy hits the scene. He's been discipled by Paul. He learned everything from Paul. He's going to be great. He's going to be fantastic. We don't know really much at all about Timothy's life except for the things that are mentioned in the New Testament. You know? Timothy didn't become the leader of the of the church after this. You know, Paul didn't pass the mantle on to him and Timothy takes over. He didn't become the archbishop of, you know, the early church. But Timothy was so focused on serving them, on putting their needs, on, on the, the things of Jesus, putting their needs first. When I am justified by Jesus, when I know that everything that I am seeking, when I'm seeking something from other people, affirmation from them, regard from them, love and adoration and all of these things, all these things that I'm trying to fill up with other people, when I receive that from Jesus, when Jesus makes me right, apart from anything that I've done, gives me everything that I could ever want, gives me the lottery, the spiritual lottery, right? Connects me to the Father. Then, I no longer have to think about my value and my meaning. I no longer have to think about how y'all think of me. I no longer have to get things out of you in my service. I can actually do it. My sense of identity, my ego, is secure. Keller explains it again like this further on. He says, The truly gospel humble person is a self-forgetful person. You forget yourself. Um, whose ego is just like his or her toes Unless you hurt your toes, how often do you think about your toes? Not very often, right? But when you stump them, you think about them a lot. But usually I don't think about, oh, you know, my third toe on my right foot is working really well right now. I don't think about it. It doesn't draw attention to itself. The toes just work. For a truly gospel, humble person, the ego just works. You have a sense of self, a sense of identity that is secure in Jesus. It never draws attention to itself. That's what Timothy is doing here. He's seeking their interests. He's not concerned about himself. He's fine. Don't worry about me. I'm fine. I'm taken care of. Luther says the same thing in that um, passage, or in that um, Writing that I, that I referenced earlier. He said, Behold, from faith thus flow forth love and joy in the Lord. And from love a joyful, willing, and free mind that serves one's neighbor willingly and takes no account of gratitude or ingratitude, of praise or blame, of gain or loss. For a man does not serve that he may put men under obligations... Man, have you ever served somebody and been like, now they kind of owe me? You probably don't explicitly say that. But as soon as something happens, you're like, wait a second. I did that for them three months ago. How dare they not do this thing for me, you know? But that's, that's not how 
a person shaped by the gospel works. For a man does not serve that he may put men under obligation. He does not distinguish between friends and enemies or anticipate their thankfulness or unthankfulness. But he most freely and most willingly spends himself and all that he has, whether he wastes all on the thankless or whether he gains a reward. There's no taking into account, what am I going to get from these people? What does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount when he begins to talk about giving to the needy? When he begins to talk about prayer? When he begins to talk about fasting? He says, don't do these things so that other people can see you. Your Father sees you and that's enough. Do it for them. So whether you're praised or whether you're disregarded, then you've got everything you need from God you shouldn't have to expect anything from humans. That's what Timothy is doing here. He is a son, as a son with a father, he is served, slaved is the actual word. That he makes himself a slave for the sake of the gospel. Somebody else did that. That Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, emptied himself taking the form of a servant, slave, made himself a slave for the sake of the gospel. Timothy is a person who is transformed by this God who slaves and serves him for his good. And so now he is willing to serve people for their good. He imitates this God that has transformed him. Okay, so Timothy is still sort of a rock star, right? He's kind of Paul's, Paul's, uh, in Paul's entourage, so he's probably better than us. Well, what about Epaphroditus? Epaphroditus is nobody. In fact, Epaphroditus was not, he was not an apostle. He was not a disciple of an apostle. He didn't come from Paul at all. He came from the church at Philippi. He came from this congregation that Paul is writing to. And how how did he come? The Philippians sent Epaphroditus with this gift. Right? He says that down at the bottom. He says, He is your messenger and your minister to my need. Right? Epaphroditus comes from Philippi to Paul to give Paul money. And either on the way, on the road there, or once he got there because of the miserable conditions of the, of the jail, he got sick. And not a little cough. But Paul says that he was almost to the point of death. He was almost to the point of death that he risked his life for the sake of the gospel. Not only was the Roman government opposed to the gospel, not only were the Jewish unbelievers opposed to the gospel, microscopic viruses were opposed to the gospel. Right? That they were attacking him. He was risking his life for the gospel. He almost died. And, and Paul is talking about him, commending him. Why? 
He said, I want to send him back to you. Not because he doesn't serve any purpose here. Not because he doesn't have potential that I could cultivate. Not because of anything like that. But because he's been so anxious about you guys. He's been so worried. That word that, that, said, that, that word that's uh, translated distressed in verse 26, the only other time that's used in the New Testament is when it's talking about Jesus on the night that he is betrayed, going into the garden distressed, weighed down with the weight of what he's about to face on the cross. That's the feeling that Epaphroditus has. Why? Because he's like, I can't die. I'm too young to die. This guy's probably pretty young. It's like, I can't, I can't die. I'm away from my family. I'm, I'm sick. I've got so many plans. No, not that at all. He's like, they heard that I was sick. My f- church family back home heard that I was sick. And I want to tell them that I'm okay. I don't want them to be worried about me. That in his weakness and in his hurt, that all he can think about is others. Man, like once again, I grumble and complain about the things that I have to do on a day-to-day basis, right? Much less when I get a man cold, you know? I want to be... I want to be babied and taken care of and like, I don't want to do anything, you know. You can't ask me to take out the trash, right? All that Epaphroditus can think about is like, what about them? What about them? I'm so concerned about them. Even though he is suffering, he's focused on others. Once again, where do we see this happen? Jesus humbles himself to becoming by becoming obedient to the point of death. Not near death like Epaphroditus experienced. All the way to death. Willing to die because of his concern for others. Can you imagine being that shaped by the gospel? To where you are at the point of death and all you can think about It's the people you love and caring for them and making sure that they know that God is faithful. Making sure that this is not an occasion for them to lose their faith and begin to distrust God. Like, we sent Epaphroditus with this money because we were trying to help and God kills him? He doesn't want them to think that. He wants them to know that God is still faithful. God is merciful. God had mercy on him. Paul doesn't say he healed him. He says he had mercy on him. He had mercy on me. Because if I would have lost Epaphroditus, it would have rocked me. Paul's not some stoic, detached, like, oh, it's all fine. God has a plan, you know. He feels things like I would have grieved. Grief upon grief, sorrow upon sorrow if I had lost Epaphroditus. That this kind of mentality doesn't make us care about the world around us less, but makes us care about it more. Because we're freed up from all of the brain space that we take up caring about ourselves so that we have more space to care about other people. Right? Can you imagine being sick like that and using as, as an opportunity to encourage those around you and cheer them up? There's this uh, professor named Jim Houston. Some of you may know him, James Houston. He's a good, dear friend of J.I. Packer. 
He actually founded Regent College up in Vancouver. He's written so many books. He loves Jesus so deeply. He is such a godly man. He's a hundred years old. When he was 99, he went into an extended care facility of some sort that he was being taken care of around the clock. And during that time, he began to write letters from a hospital bed because he wanted to use his suffering as a way to encourage people who were caretakers or to encourage people who were going to face, inevitably, going to an extended care facility themselves. He actually says this in the first letter he writes. These letters, I hope, will give you some insight into the experience of the one who is hospitalized as I am now. I hope to encourage you through our own experience of becoming so deeply dependent on the care of others for even the most basic of needs. He says, what a unique opportunity that I can write from the perspective of somebody who is needing around-the-clock care. What is it like to be a person like that? How, what, how, what would I communicate to my caretakers if I could? Like, how can I minister to people who are on that path themselves? All he could think about is, how can I use this for the advance of the gospel, for the encouragement of my brothers and sisters? And what should we do in light of this? Paul gives a command. Gives a couple of commands in verse 29. Receive him, Epaphroditus, in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Honor such people. Why? Because he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. One commentator said, By saying that it is people like Epaphroditus whom the Philippians should hold in honor, Paul at once contradicts Greco-Roman society's pervasive culture of rewarding the upwardly mobile quest for prestige and public recognition. I don't know about you, but American culture is not similar to Greco-Roman culture in this regard at all, is it? We don't think highly of people who are especially gifted or wealthy or like really great at what they do or somebody who's highly regarded. We don't think of celebrities as any different than ourselves, right? Actually, we do. The commentator says, the church instead should prize and value those who aspire to the mind of Christ. Who are the people that we hold in honor? Who are the people that we, that we regard so highly? And, and we don't have to look just at like celebrities, well-known personas like Paul and Timothy and, and Jim Houston. We can actually look for the Epaphroditus in our midst, midst, right? What would it be like if we in this church began to try and catch each other in the, in the act of doing good? And we share those stories with one another to encourage each other, to point people more to Jesus. That's something that we already do, right? Like this is something that Paul is commanding. He's saying, put on these goggles. Start looking for people who are doing Jesus things. And be encouraged by that. And encourage one another with that. That's what he's commanding them to do here. Because as we see this... 
the way that the gospel should work, right? Like, I am not focused on me because I have everything that I need from Jesus and so I can be focused on other people. If I'm, if I'm understanding my justification right, and if we are seeing the works of those around us right, we are not celebrating the people who do them so much as we are celebrating the God who is at work in them. Right? right before this, he says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's a scary verse, right? But then the next verse, he says, Because it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That God is the one at work in us. Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus, their life feels so unattainable to us, right? That, that Jesus feels, his life feels so unattainable for us. That we are nowhere close to being like this, to embodying this. I am nowhere close to getting, taking care of my ego enough to where I can serve in this way. Right? But, that's not something that I simply aspire to. Jesus is not just an example that I should imitate. He is that. But if he was just that, it would be crushing. When Paul introduces this, this sketch of Jesus in uh, a few verses earlier in 2.5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves. So he's saying, be like Jesus, right? Which, this mind, is yours in Christ Jesus. You already have this. This is already in you. If you are united to Jesus, then you are united to his heart you're united to his power. You're united to his love. And that he is the one at work in you. We'll never remove all of the sinfulness from our hearts. But Jesus came, humbled himself so that he could remove our sinfulness. So that he could give us his name of glory so that he can make us a member of his family and so that he faithfully by his Holy Spirit could transform our hearts and we could do by his power Jesus things in the world. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the example of these individuals here Thank you for the example of so many throughout our lives that we can think of who are so impacted by this Jesus who does not consider himself, who does, does not, who, though he is God, he does not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He does not even consider himself too good to come down, to empty himself, and to serve us even to the point of death on a cross. And thank you that in his dying, he is raised again. That we are united to him by faith, that everything that is true of him is true of us. Thank you for the example of so many of our, in our lives who have been impacted by that gospel. Thank you for the people in this congregation who are transformed in that way. And Father, help us to look around and catch each other in the act of doing good. 
to see each other doing Jesus things so that we can encourage one another when we see fruit growing in the lives of others so that we can encourage each other and point them to him and say, look at this amazing thing that's happening at Faith Presbyterian. And most of all, so that we can look at Jesus to celebrate him, to celebrate his redemption in the world, to celebrate his work to take this broken and warped and twisted generation and bring his gospel in the midst of it. Thank you for your patience with us, your love for us. And thank you for using us to bring your gospel. We pray that we would do it more and more. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.